I'm sure you heard of that phrase time and time again. Uh, I remember that phrase as a child, and the reporter talks about the this gentleman author was talking about that phrase. You know, you ask your, your mom or dad, and you're anxiously waiting, saying, you know, how long? I'll just be a little while, or, or a while. And, and for a child, that means absolutely nothing. That is not the response that we want to hear at all. As a matter of fact, it makes me agitated when I hear I'd rather just, just be cut and dry, right? Just tell me never, or, you know, it'll be exactly three minutes and 25 seconds. But even for us as grown-ups, if we hear that phrase, how long, and we ask that, phrase, ask that question, how long, it doesn't really help, does it? Especially if we're searching the doctor's face for any form of expression as to the length of course of a specific recovery and what we're to do in the meantime. It often presents, our, presents us with more questions than answers, doesn't it? Since it feels like an eternity for a child and more of a question than an answer for adults, the questions asked, what is the definition of a little while or a while? Well, they say defining the term is nearly as ambiguous as it sounds. The main thing to keep in mind is that this phrase really depends upon the context, doesn't it? Who's hearing it? Who's saying it? What is the context? The definition of a while is entirely and wholeheartedly dependent upon that context in which it is being used. According to one lady who was asked how long was a little while to her teenager who has promised to do the chores, she said it meant never. A little while in this passage really too for the disciples is a specific period of time. But for you and I and for those who received the gospel, received this letter, it really depends on our context our perspective, and really what we are going through during that little while, because a little while in a dentist chair can feel like an absolute eternity, can it? And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at today. This phrase, a little while, is used seven times in the opening of our text here and, and possibly alluded to in other ways. Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples about what they are going to go through or what they are going through, what they will go through, and how all of that is going to end. And for them, at this point, but I think we're going to see Jesus does stretch it out a little bit, a little while is just that. It's a little while. It's a short period of time where these things are going to happen. But I, I also think that Jesus is intentionally ambiguous here because this gospel is written for a specific people group during a specific time that actually happens after these events. And it's written for you and I today, which we are far removed from what is happening so within that, even though this is a, a literal context for the disciples, and 
what is happening is the foundation for the principles that you and I are going to pull out of this text today. So we're going to be looking at these principles that are based upon or grounded in the reality of the disciples' experience of this little while. And one thing I want us to see is that Jesus fills our little while with a lot of hope. So we're going to be looking at three principles I see from this text during this period of time. So we can fill in the phrase a little while if you want to, and we can see the, the first one is, is during this little while or for a little while, seeing Jesus uh, comes with difficulty, verses 16 through 18. Jesus says to his disciples, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while, we, we don't know what he's talking about. I... Uh, I told my youth group I wasn't going to do this, but I am going to do this. And I know my youth group is going to, everyone's going to be moaning here in about 10 minutes. Everyone knows what this is? It's called Magic Eyes. Um, Magic Eyes was uh, created, uh, the first images were created in 1991 uh, by Tom Batchy. He worked for, with Tenyo, a jump, Japanese company that sells magic supplies. So Tenyo published the first book in late 1991, and it was titled Miru Miru Megu Yukonaru Magic Eye. Your eyesight gets better and better in very short rate of time, magic eye. So that's the translation, I guess, of that. Sending sales representatives out to the street corners to demonstrate how to see the hidden image. Within a few weeks, the Japanese book became a bestseller, as did the second this is called an auto-stereogram. How many people have heard of an auto-stereogram? Never heard of it in my life. You have, Mark. One, a couple people here. That's, that's impressive because I've never heard of that word. And also, an auto-stereogram is a two-dimensional image that can create the optical illusion of a three-dimensional scene. The auto-stereograms use only one image to accomplish the effect, while normal stereograms require two. The 3D scene in an auto-stereogram is often unrecognizable until it is viewed properly. Key. Viewing any kind of stereogram, so be careful, may cause something called uh, vergence accommodation conflict. So if people start throwing up, just please excuse yourselves to the bathroom. So the, the optical illusion of the auto-stereogram is one of depth perception and involves stereopsis, which is a depth perception arising from a different perspective each eye has in the three-dimensional scene. So this is what I did for our youth group because we were talking about seeing Jesus and what it means to see Jesus. And here again, we have this phrase, actually this phrase as we are going to see bookends this passage, begins with seeing Jesus, it ends with seeing Jesus. Now, how many people see the three-dimensional fish in, in, the, in the picture? Anyone? 
No one sees the three-dimensional fish? I've gotten really good at these over the past few weeks. I've been practicing and practicing. So you should see three-dimensional fish, but the people in the center are going to have a better perspective. You have to kind of cross your eyes and like stare at one place. And I'm actually doing this so I can look at all of you and laugh because you look really funny right now. I'm not going to leave this up there uh, too long because you're not going to pay attention to anything uh, that I'm going to say. But I, I, I just thought that it's just really kind of coincides with what Jesus is saying here, that, that there is some confusion with the disciples as to what Jesus is saying, and the confusion lies in this idea of seeing him and not seeing him, or not seeing him and then seeing him again. And it even gets more confusing because the words here for seeing, so we're, is everyone good? You all saw the fish, right? See me afterwards if you want to you wanna try that. So it even gets more confusing because the words, the two different verbs for seeing that's used here, they're two different verbs. And the first seeing that he is referring to definitely is referring to seeing like I'm seeing you now in this physical sense. The second seeing doesn't discount that. However, when it's used in John, it's often referred to as this deeper spiritual perception. So they see him now, like I see you, but then they are going to see him later on, and they are really going to see him and understand him. And what I believe Jesus is referring to is how they view him after they've, re- they've received the Holy Spirit. And it's just like what we talked about the other week. We cannot understand Jesus. We cannot understand the scriptures. We can't really see who he is apart from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about uh, the time period that they are in now. This is the little while where they're seeing him, and then all of a sudden, they are not going to see him. So that time period of the little while is up into the crucifixion where they see him. For a period of time, they are not going to see him, and then they are going after a little while they are going to what? See him again. For them, short period of time. However, it doesn't discount what they went through during that period of time. For us, we're kind of on the back end of that time, aren't we? So you and I can see Jesus or we're, we try to see Jesus. How do we see him? By faith. We have to look at him through the eyes of faith. That's the only way that you and I can see Jesus because right now we can't see him like I'm looking at you as much as we want to see him, though, in that way. And sometimes we think that seeing Jesus physically is better than seeing him like you and I see him today, but that's not true at all. There were many, many people in the Gospels, who what? Saw Jesus like this, but did they really truly see Jesus? Not at all. So you and I have to look at him differently than the disciples did. However, it doesn't discount that they saw Jesus physically after the resurrection. As a matter of fact, that is foundational to our faith. But you and I have to see Jesus physically resurrected through the eyes of who? The disciples who what? Saw him. Confused? 
Okay, maybe a little bit. There's a lot of seeing going on. You're like, wow, my eyes are crossed. My brain's crossed. And, and that's where the difficulty comes in. So we, though we want to see Jesus physically, he, he actually says later on to Thomas, or understand. We have to see him spiritually, and we have to see him only through the eyes of faith. And just seeing Jesus is more than just seeing him physically. We have to believe in him and understand who he is. And, and we, you know, we, we say that all the time. Uh, it's re- very prevalent in our culture now. I see you. I was watching American Idol uh, just the other week, and one of the judges was looking at someone, and they said, I see you. And we're like, yeah, of course you see, and they're standing right in front of you, right? But it means what? I understand you. I know you better. Peter's also going to say, though you have not what? Seen him, you do what? You love him. So though we haven't seen him physically, uh, you, we, we love him. And as I said before, I know that we often say we would want to be there and see them, but we have to realize the greater and deeper understanding of seeing Jesus Christ comes after the Holy Spirit when we can really truly see Jesus for who He is and what He has done. However, it's not without difficulty, is it? Let me ask you something. Is it easy having faith sometimes? No. Is it confusing? Yes. How many people want to see Jesus right now? Right. Or maybe not. Maybe we're like, okay, not today. Maybe in 10 minutes. Maybe after the service. <laughs> and it's hard because we understand what he's saying, but we're still confused with it. Well, Jesus, I understand what you're saying, and I know you said I can see you, and I'm going to be able to see you in this fashion because you've given me the Holy Spirit. You've opened my eyes up to the truth. But really, Jesus, it's really hard right now to see you. It's really hard to have faith in you. It's really hard not to feel your presence. It's really hard not to be able to sit here and talk to you, isn't it? It's not easy. And during this time, this is where we're at. We can't see him physically, and we want to. And seeing him through the eyes of faith sometimes comes with a lot of struggle, a lot of confusion. Especially when we're suffering. Because it feels like during that time that we see him the least. I've been going through this personally. I do this all the time. We talk about seeing him by faith. We talk about having faith and, and fixing our eyes on him. You know, but there are moments where I'm like, I, I can't. Lord, can't you, just, can't you just show up? And we lay out the golden fleece. Why? Because we want to see him do something. We want to be encouraged that he's there. We want to talk to him face to face. Can you imagine what the disciples were going through? But what does he say in this? It's a promise, isn't it? It's a promise. A little while, you're not going to see me. 
But then again, in a little while, you're going to see me again. We can't see him, but we want to see him, but it's going to be some time. And because we can't see him, what else, what else do we see? Or what do we see? We see a lot of pain. Because we know what happens when we do see him. All the sorrow, all the suffering, all the pain isn't going to be seen anymore. But during this time, that's exactly what we see. But we also see that He gives us something to look at beyond that. The second principle that we see that comes out of this is our sorrow will change dramatically. Verses 19 through 20. Jesus knew that they wished to question Him. He said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. One thing that I want to point out, and uh, we can kind of skip over it because it's just in the dialogue. Uh, I want to point out how the last verse ends and how this one begins. The disciples are really, really confused. They just are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Hence again, one of the, the, the reasons that we need the Holy Spirit, because without the Holy Spirit, we have no idea what he's talking about. But notice how the next one begins, right? So the first one ends, we don't know. The next one begins, Jesus knew. What an encouragement to us that during this period of time, we're going to face sometimes a lot of confusion, aren't we? There are some times that we're going to read Scripture or whatever is going on in our lives, and we're just not going to understand. We're not. Even with the Holy Spirit, we struggle. And this is, again, one of the reasons why we must be so dependent upon God's Spirit to open up that truth to us. But Jesus knew this. He knew they were confused. And He knows all the questions that we have in that confusion. He knows all the questions that you want to ask Him before you even ask them. He knows them. And He ministers to us in that moment. But not only, not only does, did, does Jesus understand the confusion, knows the questions that we have, knows where we're at in the present moment, he knows what we're going to go through, doesn't he? He knows exactly what you and I are going to go through every hour, every day, every month, every year of our little while. He knows it. 
And somehow he weaves that all together into part of his plan, into the plan that he has for our lives. What, what does he say to them? What will they do? They will weep. They will lament. The world will rejoice. They will grieve. But, but. There's three words that are used here for the, the sorrow that they're going through. The word for weeping is used of the really deep sorrow that we express when we lose someone that we love. Death and the death of a loved one is going to bring us some of the greatest sorrow that you and I are ever going to face during this period of time, isn't it? Can you imagine now that period of time? And if you've experienced this, then you know exactly what they were going through. What do you want to do? You want to change it. You want to go back in time. You want to take it all away. And these three days felt like an eternity to them. They lost their friend. They lost the one they loved the most. They couldn't turn to the one that they, throughout their lives, throughout these three years, were turning to, to help. They couldn't ask him any more questions. They didn't know where he, where he was. Well, they knew where he was, but they didn't know what happened to him. They didn't know why. They lost hope. And they honestly thought they were never going to see him again. The other word for grief that's used here is this inward emotion that's caused by something outside of the person. And all of this is going on and what's making it worse. The world is having a very, very opposite reaction. Isn't that how we feel sometimes? During this period of time, here we are, we're, we're looking forward to the hope that we have in Christ. We're, we're trying to, to follow Him. We're trying to live faithful lives, pure lives, and we're suffering. And we're going through periods of grief, periods of, of sorrow, periods of pain, and the world is out what? Having a blast. And it's difficult, isn't it? And we ask ourselves, why? This contrast between our grieving and the world's rejoicing makes this period of time even harder, and that's how it felt for them. They were mourning the loss of, of their Lord and Savior, and the world was what? Happy. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 73, and listen to us, the psalmist in this psalm. 
He looks out at the world and he sees what? All a bunch of happiness, all a bunch of non, no, no one's suffering. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their callous hearts comes iniquity. Evil imagination has no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. And what's his response? It's right here. Why? What, what am I doing? Here I am, I've kept my heart pure and, and in vain have I washed my hands in innocence all day long. I'm plagued. I've been punished and I'm suffering every morning, yet the world is just what? Going on like it's nothing. And what does that do to our pain? It increases it. It makes it harder. As we have faith in Him, and the world is glad that He's not here. And we experience that in the death of a loved one too. People keep moving on like it's nothing. And our hearts are filled with sorrow and grief. What changes his mind? The same thing that Jesus wants to change our minds in this. What does he do? He looks forward. He sees their end. And it's the same thing that Jesus wants us to see here. Not only is our pain going to go away, that suffering, that sorrow, that pain is going to be transformed into joy. There's a similar parallel is seen in Hebrews. And, and talk about combining the two verses, the two concepts into one about seeing Jesus and then doing what? Seeing the joy, putting, putting that joy beyond the pain that you're experiencing right now beyond the sorrow that you're experiencing right now. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for what? The joy set before him. Did what? Suffered. Endured the cross, scorning its shame. Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that what? You will not lose heart. Set the joy before you. There are many instances in our life, and this is one of the, the passages that we look at, and it's just mind-blowing what is happening here. That very event, the very event which caused their deepest grief, pain, and sorrow is the same event that causes their greatest joy ever. The same thing. And so often, I think God does this in a micro scale in our own lives, but also He's going to do it in the macro scale at the end. 
where something in our life where we just, we can't imagine things getting any worse, an event that causes us so much pain is actually the same thing that is going to cause joy later on. And especially when we reach its ultimate climax. So we have a little while of a lot of weeping. But that weeping and that sorrow is going to be transformed into joy. I, I, th- I shared this before, I know, but it was in a different context. And I'm sure that you've heard of this story before, but I, I just love this illustration. I was sharing it with my daughter the other day. And it, I, you keep, if you want to go flip back and forth to Hebrews and those passages of faith and fixing our eyes and endurance, these, these kind of just parallel with that. This is Kerry Strug. The 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. I don't know if I I remember watching these Olympic Games. Uh, the, The reporter says it would take a collapse of epic proportions for the Americans not to win their first ever team gold medal. Perhaps, he says, it was the pressure, perhaps it was the nerves, but that collapse was happening. Four athletes had already vaulted and none of them landed cleanly. And then the fifth one gets up, 14-year-old Dominique Massonneau, and things got from bad to worse because on both of her attempts, she fell. One person left, Carrie Strug. Her first attempt, guess what happens? She vaults, she lands awkwardly on her ankle and sprains it. And pain was all over her face. The crowd stared in shock, and it looked for all the world as if her competition was over. She looks at her coach. She says, do we need this? Yes, we do. Clearly hurting, she limped up for the final defining vault as she catapulted herself through the air All eyes were on her landing. When her feet hit the ground, her ankles seemed to waver as the impact of the jump shook through her body. She raised her arms in triumph as she winced from the pain. The very thing that caused her pain caused her greatest joy of all time. And we see that perfectly in the cross. Then the greatest suffering that was on the cross causes our greatest healing. The greatest darkness then becomes the greatest light for this world. Pain in this world, sorrow and suffering and grief is the precursor to joy. And I always want to take it away. I always just want to get rid of it. We don't want to go through this period of time. What I'm realizing as I'm reading this is that this this is contributing to my joy in the future. And Paul is going to say that, doesn't he? That those tribulations, they don't compare. They're not even comparable to the weight of what glory that what you and I are going through right now is, is, is producing. And we can't see that. We can't feel that, 
We want to change it. But Jesus promises that it's going to happen. It's found throughout Scripture that suffering and the suffering here on earth is going to precede our joy in heaven. In hindsight's 2020, isn't it? And I think when we get there, we're going to look back and we're not going to want to change a thing. As hard as it's going to be within this context. The more I'm going to suffer here opens up the capacity for more joy there. And the reason for that transformation is because we're going to lay our eyes on the one who paved the way for us. The final principle that we see here is we will all see Jesus personally. Verses 21 through 22. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, You too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And no one will take that joy away from you. So I made a flow chart because to show you how it, well, flows, I guess. Because we break these things down, and I was talking to someone this week that kind of reminded me of this. But this flows throughout, and we, if we, we break it down this way, we can see how it flows and, and what Jesus is saying. Like I said, it's bookended by the seeing, not seeing and seeing. So during this period of time, we're not seeing Him, but we know we're going to see Him. And because we're not seeing Him, we're facing a lot of what? grief and sorrow and pain and suffering. However, all of that is what? Temporary. So during this time is the what? The labor. And this, these labor pains, but we know what's coming is the child. Now, after the child is born, the pain is forgotten. Now, I didn't say that Jesus did because I... <laughs> Because I know, as a matter of fact, women use that pain to remind us that you and I have no idea what pain really is, right? So we know, we can't ever, we can't ever top the pain scale for women who have had children uh, because they know it. Like if we're ever suffering, they just say, you've never given birth, so just don't talk to me right now. Just, you can whine as all you want. No, I think what Jesus is saying is not, it's not forgotten. It's what? Transcended. But it's the very act of the pain and giving birth that gives birth to what? The child and the joy. Perfect illustration of what Jesus is talking about. So the pain leads to the joy, uh, and it's because of the pain that we have the joy. And then we will see and we will rejoice, and how long will that 
rejoicing last is forever. And we can even look at it at kind of like if we really pull this out, phases of our salvation. So we see Jesus how? By faith. We accept him. We believe in him. That's our justification. And then what happens? We go into the sanctification part where we're continuing to look to him, to try to fix our eyes on him, but we're suffering in the process, but that suffering is producing things in us and doing things in us, conforming us to his image and actually increasing our joy, whether here or later on. And then we see him and guess what goes? All the suffering, all the pain, all the tears, and our joy is what? Complete and full. They saw him. They literally saw Jesus again. And they rejoiced when they did see him. And it is the truth of the resurrection that allows us to come here every Sunday and proclaim this reality. That because they saw him, because Jesus rose from the dead, you and I one day who place our faith in him are going to see him as well. And he promises it. And when we see him, that pain, that suffering is going to be transformed. And I think even for them, Jesus is beginning to stretch this out a little bit. Because often in the, in the Bible, when we see this reference to the, the labor, we know that it, it, it's in reference to his second coming. And we also know that their joy was interrupted. Now, we can argue that as soon as we believe in Jesus and see him spiritually, believe that he rose from the dead, we have a joy that no one can really steal from us. But, but that joy goes through periods of sorrow and suffering. Here, this, it seems like all issues are settled. We see Jesus and we have this complete and ultimate joy. And I may not want to make too much of this, but I want you to notice that Jesus says, I will see you. So it's kind of on his initiative that he's coming to them and seeing them. But hands down, we're going to see him when he sees us. And it reminds me, uh, I started thinking about the surprise soldier visits. Have you ever watched those videos? Man, if you want to cry your face off, just look up Surprise Soldier Visits Home, and you, I bawled my eyes out. You can't, you're just weeping. Because it's, it's always in the context of like a normal day. And, and sometimes there's, there's children who are surprised, there's wives who are surprised, there's parents who are surprised. And you can only imagine what's happening in their moment. And maybe they're having the worst day of their life. Kids are getting off the school bus or, or, or they're in the middle of school and maybe, maybe they're, they're just having just this awful, terrible day. All of those emotions are changed the moment they lay eyes on the one who they love but haven't seen in a while. It's gone. And all they can do is be wrapped up in his, in his or her arms and filled with joy at that moment. That is what is going to happen when you and I lay eyes on Jesus Christ. 
gone, transformed, never ever again to feel that sorrow and suffering. That's his promise. I will see you, he says. I will see you again. Just a little while. I will see you. And I think that when you and I remind ourselves of that truth, it's going to help us through this present sadness. Times that we feel like are never going to end. Times where our hearts are heavy. Where we cry ourselves to sleep. And I think we also have to see here that true joy in this life and true joy in the next life is only found in one person. And his name is Jesus Christ. There is nothing this world can offer you that will satisfy us to this extent and for all eternity. The joy that we seek elsewhere is never going to satisfy us. As a matter of fact, it's just causing us to thirst even more. It's only found in Him. And if we have that now, that's going to help us get through these times. And just like the song we were singing, when you and I see Him, we're going to see all of those who died in Him before us. And when we see Him again, we're never going to be separated from Him. We're never going to be separated from them. And we're never going to be separated from our joy. No one can rob it. No one can steal it. No one can ever take it away. Can you only imagine what that will be like? Bart Millard did. And I was thinking of our folks who saw the Mercy Me concert this past week. I saw them in concert uh, a couple years back. It was an excellent concert. Uh, he was asked about this song and the process and the, where did he find the inspiration. And one of the questions that was asked by uh, this female reporter was how much time that he spent crafting the lyrics. And he said, 10 minutes. She didn't buy it. And she said, Bart, you've been writing this song your entire life. And she was right. Millard fell into singing and songwriting after a high school injury ended his and his abusive father's football dreams. 
I can only imagine is Millard's personal reflection on what will lie ahead after this life is over and he becomes and he comes face to face with his Savior. All that he suffered is changed. He had an abusive father, but his father came to know the Lord. And if you haven't seen the movie, please see the movie. And if you want to cry again, there you go. So soldiers, homecoming, I can only imagine Kleenexes are gone. And here this guy who went through so much pain, so much suffering, so much sorrow, puts it all into perspective When this event happens, here are some of his words. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine... Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still, will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine when that day comes. When I find myself standing in the sun. And all I will do is forever, forever worship you. There's a time coming, and Jesus promises we won't have to imagine anymore. Until then, we need to hold on to this, don't we? That's why He's giving it to us. We need to hold on to His promises for just a little while. You will see Him again. He promises. And when you see Him, all that pain, all your sorrow, all your suffering, all your grief is going to be transformed into the ultimate joy. Hold on. Hold on to this. Easter is right around the corner. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that you give us. That what we are going through has its purpose in your plan. We may not understand it. We may want to change it. But Lord, we give it to you, knowing that you know. And knowing that one day we will see the end of all of it. And we will see it transformed into a joy that is absolutely unspeakable. But during this time, please help us to see you better. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. 
and help us to hold on to these promises with all of our strength. As you strengthen us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we look forward to that day when we will worship you forever and when we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.